Thank you for that, Molly. Let me invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. We'll be in chapter 14, and we'll be reading together verses 32 through 42. But let me first start off the way I start off the first service, which is to apologize uh, for the weather today. A few weeks ago, when I chose to preach on the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus in the Garden, one of the darkest places in all of the Bible, God decided he was going to make it cold, wet, and rainy. So anyone who uh, planned some picnics today and, and uh, damper that, I apologize. I uh, also want to say that, um, just a, a, a personal note of thanks to the congregation here at Highlands. It's not an easy thing to leave your family and friends in Ohio. And when Diane and I did that two years ago, we were overwhelmed by this congregation, not only for the chance to minister and serve here, but also to just be a brother and sister in Christ and to be loved on by y'all. And uh, it just means the world. A couple months ago, Diane and I were driving home on a Sunday night from youth small groups, and she turned to me and said, you know, someday if the Lord calls you to another church, I support you, but I'm staying at Highlands. (laughs) So... We do love being here, as Jerry Clower used to say. There's no place I'd rather be. Let's now turn our attention to God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you might not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Thus far in God's holy and inspired word. This is a dark place. Calvary and the cross might be the only darker place in the whole Bible. It's an agonizing place. It's a solemn place. And yet amidst the darkness is the very light of our salvation. It's important as we move forward into the Easter season to consider it. But the danger and the warning at the outset of coming to a text like this is that we walk away and are unchanged. But I pray that we'll be transformed by beholding our suffering Savior how he manifested his love for his father, his desire to remain with his father, but he also manifests his love for his people. 
Because what he is about to experience, what he experiences not only here in the garden, but what he is looking forward to at Calvary, he did for you and me, for those who trust in him and him alone. Divide this message into three parts. The emotion of Jesus, the surrender of Jesus, and the hour of Jesus. Jesus has spoken of his impending death and suffering throughout all the gospel narratives. And he's done so with such a firm resolve that disciples were not only amazed at what he was telling them, but they were amazed at the manner in which he spoke of it. He seems completely firm and determined to be about this mission which the Father has sent him on. The whole purpose for him taking flesh. The whole purpose we have nativity scenes and we have Christmas carols and we have open presents. All these things that we do to celebrate Christmas has all come because of this moment in time. The hours here. And the disciples were amazed at his candor and were amazed at his ability to speak about such things with such firmness that they even wondered, does he even care? And we might wonder as well, what is the mind of Jesus? What is this, the emotional state of Jesus? Jesus is a human being. If he's not fully man, then he could never be our substitute. We need a savior from sin. And we are sin-sick people. We can't atone in and of ourselves the penalty. We cannot cover the penalty of a righteous God against sin. We're messed. As, As hard as we might try, we are not holy. But Jesus has lived the perfect life that we should have lived. He's about to die the death that we deserve to die. And he comes here to the garden. And he's overwhelmed. This isn't the only place in the scripture that this event is recorded. It's also in the Gospel of Luke. And Luke, who is a physician, notes that the agony and despair for Jesus was so severe that his sweat were like drops of blood. I'm not a doctor. I don't understand the biology and the physiology of it. But I can't imagine the despair and the despondency that Christ must be experiencing in this garden. Luke also records that an angel came to Jesus and ministered to him in this hour. And one Scottish theologian noted that after meeting and beholding the risen Christ in heaven, he wants to converse next with that angel. Imagine the depth and the power of suffering that must have been witnessed. These are the sorts of things that the scripture tell us that angels long to look. Because here is the king of glory on his knees, despairing. But over what? What has driven Jesus to this place and this point? What is it that he fears? Some of you may have seen a few years ago the movie, The Passion of the Christ. And some people choose not to view movies that depict Jesus, and I respect that and I understand. I saw it, and I don't think I'll ever look at the crucifixion the same way again. I can't watch that movie a second time. But the movie doesn't as much and well as the movie captures the physical trauma and horror of the Roman crucifixion as an execution for criminals. It doesn't capture the full essence of why Jesus is nailed to that cross in the first place. 
as a substitute for our sin. He is not just experiencing pain. He's experiencing separation from his father. Well, I think it's possible that Jesus might have been driven to agony because physically it was going to be a trial unlike anything else. It might also be possible that Jesus was in agony because he was going to have to say goodbye to his friends and to his family. But he knew he would be raised again three days later. And he knew that by doing this, he was going to create an even greater union with those who have followed him and lived with him these last three years. Jesus is in agony in the garden because he knows Calvary does not just mean the Roman execution. Calvary means separation from God, his Father, who he has maintained complete and perfect union since the very, before even time. Jesus Christ is equal with God. And he has never had a moment when he has not felt and been in complete union with the love of the Father. And the thought of that being separated for even just a moment, six hours on a cross, three days in a tomb, is a reality that Jesus Christ is not even able to bear. It's the reality that makes him say to his disciples, my soul is overwhelmed even to the point of death. What does it tell us then that the only person in all of human history who is perfectly obedient is willing to sweat blood at the very thought of being separated from the Father? What do we despair of? What drives us to anxiety? We have legitimate trials. I'm not meaning to minimize pain in this life. It's real. It's hard. Many of you go through trials I can't even begin to fathom. But if this is the one thing in life that makes life not worth living, then for those of us who trust in Him and who have eternal fellowship with the Father and an unbroken relationship with God from now and through all eternity... So that death is just a transition. It is not separation. It is not judgment. How would that affect our perspective on life? What would that mean when we get bad news? No. We have a relationship with God. And Paul writes in Romans 5 how we are justified and the fruit of our justification, meaning the fruit of our right relationship with God, is peace and access to God. It's access. But Jesus here in this darkness and this emotion means two things, I think, for us to take away this morning. First of all, and most importantly, Jesus experiences this darkness and this despair so that those who trust in him never have to. As dark as providence may get in your life, as hard and painful as the trial may come, You'll never experience anything like this if you trust in him, if you cling to him, if you love him and embrace his love and mercy for you. Jesus experiences this darkness so we'll never have to. And it also means that because he has been there, he has been to the depths and the epitome of death and hell itself. We confess in the Apostles' Creed that Jesus descended into hell. And and John Calvin, the great reformer, noted that his descent into hell happens on the cross. 
because what he experiences on the cross is the wrath of an almighty and holy and just God against sin. God can't stand to be in the presence of sin. If he just swept it under the rug, he would not be a holy and majestic and wonderful God. He would not be the one worthy enough to call upon and to bow before and to worship and give praise and glory and honor. But he is a holy God. No, he's holy, holy, holy God. And sin must be dealt with. And Jesus deals with it. But he's overwhelmed. And it also tells us that not only does he take this darkness so we'll never have to, but we have now a great high priest, as Hebrews says, who understands and who empathizes with our pain. Whatever you're going through in life, I can't even imagine some things. Pastor Brunson, Pastor Wheat, some of you have suffered beyond words. And if you've ever wondered or been in a place in your life where you say, no one understands. I feel so alone. I feel trapped. Look to Jesus. He knows. He understands. He's been there. Psalm 88 ends with one of the most spine-tingling verses in all of the Bible when the psalmist says, darkness is my only friend. Darkness is my only friend. I don't think I've ever been there in my life. But God has been there. Jesus has been there. He knows. He understands. We can bring before him our trials. And the Savior who has endured all of this longs to comfort us and to strengthen us and to encourage us. The emotion of Jesus. The surrender of Jesus. As much as the, the will of Jesus was to escape this cup, he mentions the cup. And the cup is an image throughout the Old Testament which was used as a metaphor for the justice and wrath of God against sin. As we've already talked about, God cannot stand the presence of sin. And so this cup must be poured out. And the disciples have said, we can bear it with you. But Jesus time and time again has said, no, I must bear this alone. Only he is worthy to drink the cup. Only he can. And here in the garden, as much as he hates the very idea of being separated from the Father, even greater is his desire to be obedient to the Father, to obey. This is the cause for which he came into the world. And the Father has sent him on a mission. And he sent him out of love. He sent him out of mercy and grace. And so Jesus says, not my will, but thy will. Jesus is a human being. This is not an easy prayer to pray. It wasn't for Jesus. And it's not for us. It's not an easy prayer to pray when the word from the doctor's office is cancer. It's not an easy prayer to pray when the business is about to go under. It's not an easy prayer to pray when the relationship is in trouble. And yet when we are united to Christ and we trust in Him and He invades our lives and gives us a new heart and a new spirit, we are empowered to say to God, not my will, but Thy will. How? Why? Because we cry, Abba, Father. Because Jesus is able to dress God as Abba, Father, 
And to know God in this distinct way is a reality with which we are enabled to say, it's more important that your will be done than mine because I recognize you are my father. And as my father, you love me and you care for me and you want what's best for me. And what's best for me is not always my will. And it's not always the easy road. It's not the path that removes all suffering and pain. Sometimes it is the path of crucifixion. Not my will, but thy will. Calling God Abba and Father is something that we're pretty familiar with in our church on this day and age. Yet to the first century Palestinian Jew, this would have been completely scandalous. Because God wasn't known as Father. God was Yahweh. God was the God of the covenant. He was the creator God. He was holy. He was separate. There were all these intricate details of how which you approached God. But you didn't dare approach God without reverence and honor. And to call God Abba and Father was seen by first century Jews as to be completely vulgar. And Jesus cries out, Daddy. And this is what the Pharisees couldn't stand. They had to kill him for it. Because the idea of God as Father was completely foreign. And yet, the power that enables us to say, Thy will and not my will is because of the reality that those who are in Christ call God Father, call God Daddy. I'm a Northerner. You would call Yankee. I would call Midwesterner. But we don't call our dads Daddy. But not only after living in Mississippi for a few years and looking into this text, I've come to have a a renewed appreciation for the term Daddy. And I think it's okay for us to to see our relationship with our Heavenly Father as Daddy. Because there's an intimacy and a closeness that is unparalleled with any other relationship. The will of God is a tricky thing sometimes for us. We ask ourselves lots of time, what's God's will for my life? It's a legitimate question to ask. I've asked it many times. Undoubtedly, you've asked it yourself. But... I think we sometimes miss it because when we ask about the will of God, generally what we're inquiring about is what does God want me to do? Where does he want me to work? Where does he want me to live? Who does he want me to marry? What am I supposed to do? What kind of car should I drive? All legitimate questions and important questions of life. But you know what the will of God is primarily and most importantly and not all the scriptures? The will of God is that you be his. That as we sung earlier, that you be known by him, that he becomes your father, that you become his son and his daughter, that you have this relationship. That's the will of God for your life. And everything else then is living out that reality in our daily lives. Paul writes to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 4 that the will of God is your sanctification. It's a a big theology word which just means that you live out what God has put within you. This right relationship. That you live a holy life. Which is not trying to work your way up to please God. But it's just simply a life that says, "I'm I'm his kid. As Pastor Wheat said a few weeks ago, it's enough sometimes for you just to be his kid. To just live out that reality day in and day out. And, and when you know God as Father, you can say, it's okay. Paul also writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, that 
All things work together for the good of those who love him. It's important to note that Paul doesn't say that everything that happens in this life is good or that it's good that you suffer. But he's saying what makes it good, what makes it okay, is because God takes even our tragedies, even our trials and our pain, and he works it out in such a magnificent and sovereign way as to be ultimately for his glory and for our good. And so we can confess it is good that this happened to me. Not because the, the trial in and of itself is good. We don't want to call evil good. But because God wants to do something magnificent through our pain. And he wants us to grow us more and more into the image of his son. He wants us to be like him. And that's the will of God for our lives. We've seen the emotion of Jesus. We've seen the surrender of Jesus. The hour of Jesus. Jesus prayed the prayer, and the answer came. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. His betrayer was on his way. The word from heaven is silence. It's justice. It's atonement. It's crucifixion. And I think it's interesting. We learn something magnificent about the gospel in this, these few remaining verses. Because time and time, three times, Mark records, that Jesus told his disciples to sit and watch and pray. And we can understand why Jesus would want to make such a request, right? He's in the most agonizing moment of his life. We all want friends by us when we go through these trials and these pain. But look at the way Jesus says it. He doesn't say, stay with me. Boy, I need you right now. No, Jesus prophesied earlier in verse 27 that he knew that they would abandon him, that they would leave his side. He was under no illusions that they would keep watch. But he tells them to sit and watch and pray for their own benefit, for their own good, that they may not enter into temptation. It's marvelous. If there was ever a time where Jesus we could understand and say, I've put up with you bozos for three years. You haven't gotten it. You still don't get it. And I am now facing one of the darkest hours of mankind. And you can't even stay awake. We wouldn't blame Jesus for saying that. But our God is such a kind and gracious and merciful Savior that he's still thinking of the good of his followers, even in this moment. Even in this pain, he's still thinking of the good of his followers. That's marvelous. I have trouble taking that in sometimes. But that's the essence of the gospel. Jesus remains faithful when his disciples do not. And so as a moment of application, don't ever think God is surprised when we mess up. Or when we fall short. Sin is deceptive. It would have us believe that when we sin and we run away, that when we sin, we should run away. We should flee, get away from God. We feel shame and guilt, which is the right consequence and reaction of sin. But the Bible continually tells us what to do with our sin, which is flee to the cross. Flee to the feet of Jesus. Bow down before him and confess him as Lord and, and relish in his grace and mercy. He's not surprised when you fall short, and yet he loves you all the more. And yet he wants to grow you closer to himself. 
wants to be known. He wants you to know him. Don't ever be surprised by our own sin and our own falling short. We are still in a state of rebellion, even despite our own right relationship with God. But the hour has come. In the book of Genesis, we read that a holy and righteous God created this magnificent world and all that is in it, and he called everything good, and he created a creature where he put his own stamp upon, he put his own image and likeness, and he pledged to have a continual relationship with this creature called man, and that man would have all the benefits of knowing God face to face. But there was just one exception, to not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was it. Because God said, the day you do that, you will surely die. We know the story. Man took the fruit. But he should have died. The human experiment should have been over. The wages of sin is death. But God is long-suffering and patient and kind. And he makes a wonderful prophecy in Genesis 3.15 where he says, The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Serpent being the devil. We're thousands of years away from that prophecy in Mark 14. But the hour has come. It's here. Mentioned earlier the movie The Passion of the Christ. I think the best part in that entire movie is right at the beginning. It's not in the text, so we don't want to claim it as inspired, but I still think it captures the, the prophecy of Genesis 3.15. Jesus is in despair and agony in the garden, and Satan is there tempting him, telling him that he's too weak, that he'll never do it, that they're not sinners are not worth saving. And this big python snake begins to wrap itself around the legs and the feet of Jesus as he's praying to his Father in heaven. And all of a sudden, the camera pans away from Jesus and on to the snake. And then all of a sudden, the foot crushes the head of the serpent. And Jesus just stares at Satan. And at that moment, salvation was bought and won. When he surrendered to the will of his Father, and from then on, there was no stopping Jesus Christ from accomplishing the mission which he came to accomplish. And that was the salvation of his people. To die and to take on the sin of the world, of those who would come to know him by faith. It's the gospel. As dark as it is here for Jesus, it is light for you and me. You and me should be at Gethsemane. We should be at Calvary. But we're not. Because Jesus has been there in our place. In Genesis Also in Genesis, the father of this nation of Israel, Abraham, through whom this prophecy to bring about the Messiah would be fulfilled, is asked of God to take his son up to the mountain and to build an altar and to sacrifice his beloved son Isaac. And just as Abraham raises his arm with the dagger to strike down and to bring the knife's blow, a cry from heaven goes out. It says, stop. 
and a substitute is provided. But this time at Calvary, when the arm and the dagger of a righteous and angry God against sin is raised, the only cry that is heard that day is the cry of Jesus. As he cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken in our place. And he would go into a tomb. But that's not where the story ends, as we'll see in the Easter story. There is resurrection. The tomb will be rolled away. Death will be conquered. Sin will be conquered. And now we who live by faith in him walk in newness of life and in purpose and in joy and in kindness and in mercy, growing evermore every day in the knowledge of his love and his sovereignty. That's our purpose if you're looking for a purpose-driven life. It's to know him, to be known by him, and to walk in that reality. And so my prayer for us is in the Easter season is that the emotion of Jesus, the surrender of Jesus, and the hour of Jesus would be ever present before us. Not only to weep on Good Friday, but to sing with joy and passion on Easter Sunday, knowing that we are his and that he is mine. Let's pray. Abba, Father, to know you is to know life and joy and peace and hope. We are left speechless at this reality of Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. We thank you, Jesus, for being our substitute, for going through this darkness for us so that we'll never have to. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for continuing to uphold us just as you upheld the Son in that moment. Lead, guide, and direct us. We pray in your name and for your sake. Amen.